0: For those of you who I haven't met yet, my name is Dana. I'm one of the pastors here. Usually I'm beaten away on the keyboard, and uh, this morning I have the privilege of sharing a message that the Lord has laid on my heart for us. But before we do that, this Thursday is Remembrance Day, and I think we'd be remiss if we didn't uh, thank the Lord for those who have gone before us so that we could actually do what we're doing here. And as well, that we need to remember those hundreds of countries in which war is still ravaging their land, and we look forward to that day when all wars shall cease, amen? Amen. Would you pray with me, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? What a gift it is to be able to gather like this without any fear and stand and sing and, and be together It's a privilege that there are millions of people around this world that they can't enjoy. And so all we can do this morning is say thank you. This coming Thursday is Remembrance Day in Canada. And we thank you for those who have laid down their lives so that we could enjoy the freedoms that we do. We pray that it would be a special day for veterans, that they would receive recognition for their sacrifice. We think of those countries in which war is still ripping them apart. Lord, we pray. We pray that your peace would come and that your peace would reign and that the lion would lay down with the lamb, that the weapons would be beaten into plowshares. And Father, we just look forward to that day. But until that day comes, may you help us, your people, to be instruments of peace in whatever ways we can. So once again, we thank you for this time. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would use me this morning. I ask that whatever I say is true would resonate. Whatever I say that is false and fleshly, that we would recognize it as such and throw it away. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Ethan, you can turn me down just a little, please, because I'll probably get a little excited, and that's going to be... Uh, uh, here's here's the type of world in which we live. As Jonathan gave his introduction about uh, announcements, uh, Ethan showed me on the computer. It came across, this is the big brother world, Phil Woodworth, I am watching. That's... that's uh, so that's where... Uh, That's how interesting things are. We can run, but we can't hide. If you have your Bibles with you this morning or a Bible app on your phone, I'd invite you to turn to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, Genesis chapter 15. We'll be looking there momentarily. A word, a message that I've entitled, you can take your pick. The first one is a little more wordy. It's called The Challenge of Faith in a Show Me the Money the World. The challenge of faith in a show-me-the-money world. Or you can simply call it, look up, way up. That has about 20 A's in the middle of it, if you want to get the spelling right. One of the philosophical lessons repeatedly revealed in the Bible is that as we journey through life here on earth, things are seldom, if ever, what they appear to be. Paul says as much in the 13th chapter of the New Testament letter of 1 Corinthians when he writes, now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, a lesson which we deny or we ignore or we forget to our own peril. In fact, I would contend this morning that one of Satan's go to strategies, and we can trace this all the way back to the Garden of Eden, is his ability to direct our attention to the wrong things while keeping our focus away from things that are beneficial and life giving. This is manifested in one of my favorite Bible stories in the Old Testament. In the sixth chapter of the Old Testament book of 2 Kings, the prophet Elisha and his servant find themselves surrounded by a hostile army. Elisha's servant is freaking out because he looks out the window and all he can see are the soldiers and the chariots and the reality of his impending death. Verse 15 What will we do now? The young man cried to Elisha Don't be afraid. Elisha told him, for there are more on our side than there are on theirs, at which point the servant must have thought that his master was stark, raving mad. Verse 17, then Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes and let him see. The Lord opened the young man's eyes And when he looked up, I find it very interesting that it's not just enough to have your eyes open. The Lord opened his eyes and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and with chariots of fire. Things are seldom, if ever, what they appear to be. Oh, Lord... Open our eyes this morning. Now, I understand how nonsensical stories like this seem, especially since the Enlightenment, when the scientific method became the primary means of evaluating and defining what is true. These stories are considered by many to be offensive to common sense. They're a blatant affront to a show-me-the-money type of world, an ethos or reality in which what we see is what we get. Hebrews 11.1 defines faith this way. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence, here we go, of things that we cannot see. And so my question to you simply this morning is, where and at what do we spend the lion's share of our time looking. Where and at what do we spend the lion's share of our time looking? If you are a hockey fan or a football fan or even if you've watched the games at all, you understand the tremendous value of keeping your head up. The most devastating body checks I've ever seen, the most bone-crushing sacks that I've ever seen have come largely as the result of players who've put their heads down and they've got absolutely blindsided. Things are seldom, if ever, what they appear to be. A truth that's reiterated in Genesis chapter 15. And so I would invite you here or if you're watching online if you would please stand in respect for the reading of God's word this morning. Would you stand, please? Genesis 15. The Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, Don't be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you, and your reward will be great. But Abram replied, Oh, sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Abram's response to God's promises is eclipsed by what he does not have. Now, God has made some beautiful and extravagant claims upon Abram's life, but there are a boatload of things that need to happen before the end game comes to fruition. And so in the face of his scarcity, Abram, in brutal honesty, expresses a what good are these moment with God? What good are all of your blessings when I don't even have, and you can fill in your own blank this morning. We continue on. You have given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. And then the Lord said to him, no, you'll have a son of your own. And then the Lord took Abram outside and he said, look up into the sky. Count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. This is the word of the Lord. You can go ahead and have a seat. God is a promise-making. And contrary to atheists past and present, he is a promise-keeping God. The author Herbert Locklear has identified 7,147 promises from Genesis to Revelation made from God to human beings. And here we find a couple of those promises. In verse 5, God promises Abram that he'd be the father of a nation. Two verses later, God promises him that he and his people would have a land to call their own. Which is interesting from a historical perspective. But if history really isn't your bag, why should I, you, we, anybody really care? Because when we come to verse 14 of chapter 3 of Paul's New Testament letter to the Galatians, we read this. Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles, that's all of us this morning, with the same blessing that he promised to Abraham. Verse 29, now that we belong to Christ, we are the true children of Abraham. We are his heirs. And God's promise to Abraham belongs to us. God's promises to Abram are promises for any and all people who love and follow Jesus Christ. Meaning that, just as God promised that Abram would inherit a new family who would span the globe, we too are inheritors of that promise. To me, it's one of the most valuable parts of going on a short-term missions trip. We get to understand in a concrete way that we belong to a global family. Because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, you and I have sisters and brothers in Germany, Japan, Uganda, the Caribbean, Ethiopia, Syria, the Netherlands, Cuba, Russia, all over the world. We have sisters and brothers in Jesus used to sing growing up in church, a little chorus that said, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God, a new family. Just as God promised Abram that his new family would inherit a new land, those of us who love and follow Jesus are also waiting to inherit a new land, a creation that lies in front of us, a utopia described in the New Testament book of Revelation in which there will be no more death. No more sorrow, no more sickness, no more pain. And so we are heirs to a new family. We are heirs to a new land because the promises to Abram are promises to us. So God layers mind-blowing promise upon mind-blowing promise upon his servant and Abram quite naturally expresses his misgiving. O sovereign Lord, What good are all of your blessings when I don't even have a son? That's Abram's polite way of saying these promises of a new people and of a new land, they're really cool and all, but aren't we putting the cart before the horse? I'm not even the father of a child, let alone being the father of a nation. How in the world is this going to happen ever ask God how in the world is this going to happen it's the response of the unmarried teenage Mary whom an angel had just told oh Mary you're going to become pregnant you're going to deliver a baby boy he's growing up to be the savior of the world and in Luke one thirty four, Mary asks the angel, But how can this happen? I'm a virgin. So Abram and Mary are exhibit A for all of us who have gone through moments or seasons in which God's promises look absolutely unattainable. How do we claim God's promise in seasons of life when peace is hard to find, when the future looks unbearably bleak, and when hope has all but died? What recourse does the follower of Jesus have when, as the hymn says, darkness veils his lovely face? Yes and amen that at a certain place and a certain time in history, God has told us such and such is going to happen. There's no denying that. But in the here and now, in the the show-me-the-money world, where our boots are on the ground, perhaps when you're all alone, and the only thing staring back into your eyes are the hard, cold facts. Human logic and reasoning have an insidious way of nudging faith aside and convincing us there's no way in a million years that that is going to happen. A position that is only one small step away from the deceivers did God really say. Found in Genesis 3. In fact, in Genesis 18... When Abram's wife, Sarah, overhears the Lord telling him that in a year's time, he's going to come back and he's going to visit Sarah, Abram, and their baby boy, we read this. Sarah laughed silently to herself and said, How could a worn-out woman like me enjoy such pleasure? Verse 13. Then the Lord asked Abraham. I find it funny that the Lord asked Abraham, why his wife did a certain thing. Uh, That's just another topic for another day. Why did Sarah laugh, says the Lord? Why did Sarah say, can an old woman like me have a baby? And I believe with all of my heart that one of the reasons that some of you are here this morning and hearing this word online is to hear the Lord's final question. Is anything too hard for the Lord. Is anything too hard for the Lord? When the Lord said this, Sarah was afraid. So she denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, and I have a twisted sense of humor, but I find this hilarious. But the Lord said, no, you did laugh. (laughs) He knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. As God's children, how do we respond to the how can this be seasons of life? Those moments in which we wonder, how in the world, God, can your promises come true? Now, I love the fact that Abram is honest enough and daring enough and bold enough to share his questions with God. And I equally love the way that God responds to Abram's questions because I believe it may shine some light on how God may respond to us. Firstly, God does not deny or downplay that from Abram's vantage point, things do look impossible. God does not magically or miraculously touch Sarah's womb in that moment. He does not tell Abraham to dig deep within himself, to man up. Stop being such a baby and just do what needs to be done. He doesn't encourage Abraham to formulate a scheme or a plan just in case, you know. Christians are notorious for baptizing escape clauses for God as being the responsible thing to do. Give God an out, you know. A contingency fund, a plan B for the unexpecteds. God does not criticize or condemn Abram for asking the question. But neither does he elaborate. Rather than filling in any blanks, crossing any T's, or dotting any I's, he simply asks Abram, walk with me. And I picture in my mind's eye God putting his arm around Abram's shoulder, leading him outside and telling him, Abram, look up, way up. The Friendly Giant was a television show that aired on CBC from 1958 to 1985. It starred a giant called Friendly, a recorder playing rooster called Rusty who lived in a book bag that hung on the wall, You don't know what you're missing if you haven't seen the show. It's grade-A television. And a gawky but lovable giraffe called Jerome. Each 15-minute episode began with the camera panning over a detailed model of part of a village, a farm, a harbor, a city, and Friendly would narrate what was taking place at each site. Eventually, the camera would stop at the toe of Friendly's boot at which point he would invite all of the viewers to look up way up before letting down the drawbridge to his castle and inviting each of the viewers to come in for a visit in which he always had a comfy place for us to sit. As a child, I loved the show. As a 49-year-old adult, I love Friendly's Invitation. Look up. Way up. I may be wrong. I'm wrong lots. Ask my wife. But the overwhelming impression that I get is that many of us, the older we get, either stop looking up altogether or at very least we radically decrease how much we used to look up. From an early age, our eyes become glued to our gadgets. In the last seven days, eight people have walked out in front of me while I was driving, completely oblivious to the fact that I was driving and that they were walking with their heads down. We are socially conditioned to avoid looking at other people in the eye, lest we violate their privacy or encourage unwanted conversation. Therapists encourage us to mine and analyze the rearview mirror of our past, while at the same time, the 24-7 news feed fuels an unhealthy obsession about all of the uncertainties that lie out in front of us that we can't even see yet. And that's when we're not checking our side mirrors for the people and situations all around us. Our heads are on a constant swivel. But when is the last time that you looked up? For how long? Because I believe that the offshoot questions from that inquiry are equally legit What happens if and when we don't look up? What are the benefits if and when we do? And and more importantly, as God's children, can we afford not to? Because it is in that moment when Abram looks up that his father reminds him that our walk of faith is all about perspective. The lead pastor at Brooklyn Tabernacle, Jim Simbla, rightly says this, Satan wants us to focus on the problem, not the provider. He constantly points, here we go, to what seems to be, rather than to what God has promised to do. Other than the biblical definition of Hebrews 11, one of the best definitions of faith that I have ever found comes from the South African poet and philosopher, Gift Gugu Mona. What a great name. She says this, faith is a commitment to stay focused on the fulfillment of God's promises. Faith is a process whereby we hold on to God's promises because we know, that he will fulfill each and every one of them. I can't speak for any of you this morning. Only one I can speak of with honesty is myself. But I constantly need to be reminded that instead of being overwhelmed by the problem, I should instead look up way up keeping my gaze fixed on God's plan and God's power. Scripture repeatedly points to this discipline. Psalm 121, I will lift my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. In Isaiah forty twenty-six, God asks, to whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Look up into the heavens. Who created all of the stars? Psalm 8. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what are people that you are mindful of us? Psalm 19. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make his name known. Hallelujah. In the first five chapters of John's gospel, Jesus' closest friends had been with him when he turned water into wine, when he healed the dying son of a government official, when he caused a lame man to walk again. So that by the time we get to chapter 6 of John, And Jesus asks his friends where they could find some food to feed the thousands of people who'd been listening to him teach. In light of all of these mind-blowing, illogical, irrational miracles that they'd seen Jesus do, we might be surprised by Philip's response for a little food. Jesus said, Philip, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money. To feed them. Isn't it interesting, just as a side note, that the go-to solution, even in biblical days, was more work and more money? Just saying. Then, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. Now, if Andrew had stopped right there, it might have been okay but he's so much like me or I'm so much like him or he's so much like some of us when he continued. But what good is that with this huge crowd? What good is that? What good are all of your blessings when I don't even have? How can this be? like Abram, like Jesus' disciples, nine times out of ten, I get lost and lose hope because I'm looking around instead of looking up. And before I know it, after allowing my gaze to be held captive by the things of this earth, I find myself paralyzed by the problem rather than seeking God's design. When Abram looked in the mirror, all he could see was a couple of senior citizens whose childbearing years were long gone. When he looked around, all that he saw was an empty nursery. When the disciples looked around, all they could see were thousands of empty bellies. They knew with one glance that there was no buns and things nearby. There was no takeout in the vicinity. The obstacles looked insurmountable. They naturally became overwhelmed by the problem. They were so disheartened with their human helplessness that when Andrew did find a possible solution, the cold, hard facts, as the disciples saw them, trumped their faith. Their tunnel vision blinded them from seeing everything that God was able, willing, and wanting to do. To the degree that they ended up scorning the very material of God's blessing. What good is this? Despite all of the promises, Abram without a child, the disciples without any food, Mary without a husband, none of them could do anything to solve their problem. And here's the good news. Neither can we. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I too, the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or we die all of these people in different ways found themselves in over their heads and through each of them god warns us don't be enamored with the past don't look back and pine for what we always misinterpret as being the glory days My goodness, the children of Israel hadn't got two feet out of slavery in Egypt when they were saying to Moses, Oh, we wish we were back! Don't pine for the good old days. Don't be obsessed with the future. Looking forward and getting mired in all of the uncertainties of life. Don't be paralyzed by the present looking around and becoming overwhelmed by what has been called the tyranny of the now. Look up. Way up. Because if, when, and as we do, John 16, 11 says that Jesus took the five loaves, he gave thanks to God, and he distributed them to the people. He did the same with the fish, and I love this part, and the crowd ate as much as they wanted. It was an all-you-could-eat buffet. What good is this? Oh, it's everything when God gets his hands on it. Luke 1.38, Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything that you have said about me come true. Genesis 15 and 6, and Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted him as righteous. Why? Because of his faith. Faith is a commitment to stay focused on the fulfillment of God's promises. Faith is a process whereby we hold on to God's promises because we know, we know, we know that he will fulfill each and every one of them. Look up. Way up. Because that was all of the reality check that Abram needed. In that moment, he believed the promise because he trusted the way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper. Light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. And here's the key. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. Aren't you glad, church, that he never stops working? That's a good place for an amen. Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed us with the same blessing he promised Abraham. God's promise to Abraham belongs to us. And so this morning, what mountain? What? How can this be? Promise? Are you standing at the bottom of? In the face of what to you and I may look impossible, to whom, upon what, have we been fixing our gaze? This morning's word is shared particularly for those of us for whom the enemy has succeeded in focusing our attention on what we don't have. rather than everything that the good Father is for us. This morning's word is for any of us who are facing what may seem to be impossible, insurmountable odds. Physical, psychological, financial, relational. Where it feels like all the cards are stacked against you or someone you love. Where you're caught between a rock and a hard place. Where you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Over the years, personally, one of the most meaningful songs. I, I almost said in my notes I have that we've ever sung, but there have been few times that I've been able to get through it. So I've let everybody else take it. It's a song that could have been written or sung by Abraham. And the band's going to close with it in just a moment. But the chorus of that song says this. And it is a declaration of intent. I will lift my eyes to the maker of the mountains that I cannot climb. I will lift my eyes to the calmer of the oceans raging wild. I will lift my eyes to the healer of all of the hurts that I hold inside, I will lift my eyes. I will lift my eyes to you. I'll ask Jonathan and the band to come back. Satan wants us to focus on the problem, not the provider. He constantly points to what seems to be, rather than to what God has promised to do my prayer for you this morning is that you will receive both comfort and courage in the promises of God. Philippians 4.19 says this, God shall supply all our need according to his riches in glory. We can't even get our heads around half of his riches in glory. God shall supply all our needs, not our wants. We need to clearly pray and discern, God, what do I want from what I need? Which can be a very painful onion to unpeel. I once heard an old preacher about 10 years ago. He was old then. He's a lot older now. (laughs) God shall supply all our need, was the text that he was using. And, and he said, you know, God, God tells us when he teaches us to pray. He said, God asks us to ask for, give us this day our daily bread, not our daily cake. What do we want? What do we need? Through Jesus, we belong to a new family. We are heirs to a new country in which there will be no more sadness, no more sickness, no more pain, no more sin. But until that day when God's kingdom will come, when his will is perfectly done on earth as it is in heaven, may we continue to listen to the still small voice of his Holy Spirit speaking to ours, encouraging us, while life's dark maze I tread, And griefs around me spread. Be thou my guide. Bid darkness turn to day. Wipe sorrow's tears away. Nor let me ever stray from thee aside. And so this morning, my sisters and my brothers, I encourage you. Don't look in. Don't look back don't look around look up way up would you stand as we sing